On February 13th of this year, the day of the Super Bowl, we had a high of about 37 degrees. What a lovely thought on such a sweltering day as this. The National Football League has named the Sunday of the Super Bowl Super Sunday. It's a day of great conquest, a, a, a day of a great contest, a contest the outcome of which will move fortunes and either dash or fulfill the hopes of thousands over the country, if not over the world. It is a Super Sunday, unhappily for many, because it's the fruit of darkness in the world, because they haven't grasped the idea that every Sunday is a Super Sunday. Not because there's a great contest to be held on that day, but because it's the celebration of a great contest accomplished. It is the celebration of a mighty victor, Jesus Christ, over the worst opponent, sin and death, and his resurrection unto eternal life, and that on behalf of all of his people. And so for us, we are specially privileged to have Super Sunday every Sunday. But this Sunday, well, it is a super-duper Sunday for us. Because this Sunday, we're going to turn our attention to the great day of the Lord the consummation of the great victory of Jesus Christ, that grand day when Christ will return and he will be acknowledged as the great conqueror of darkness, sin, and death. So let us hear what the Apostle Paul has to say about these things. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, and I'll read for us verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the, dark, of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let us pray together.
Father, we ask that you would grant us grace to behold the beauty of our Lord as he is portrayed in this passage and the wonder of the life that he's called us to as we await his return. We ask this for his glory and for our good. Amen. Last Sunday, when we looked at this passage, we considered what Paul teaches in verses 1 through 3 with respect to the day of the Lord, the return of Christ in judgment. We saw that according to God's purpose, that day is both known and unknown. That is to say, Paul taught the Thessalonians that there was to be a day of the Lord, but also insisted that the time of that day was not revealed. Next, we considered Paul's teaching from verses 4 through 5, that believers are well prepared for the unknown day of the Lord. We concluded that believers are prepared for the day of the Lord because they are children of that day. That is, the day of the Lord, as it were, has already come upon them. I want to review with you, very briefly, the seven propositions that we laid out to demonstrate this truth, because this morning's exposition is going to be all application. We'll be thinking of how to apply these things to our own lives. So how has the day of the Lord already come upon believers? First, On the day of the Lord, Jesus will be revealed in glory. But now, we are the people who have the glory of Christ revealed within us. That's what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Second, On the day of the Lord, the light of judgment will shine upon all. But we now live in the light of the judgments of that day. On that day, the light of the world will so shine, such that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But by God's grace, now that light shines in our hearts. And we willingly bow and confess his lordship now. Three. On the day of the Lord, the light of righteousness will be made plain. But we now love righteousness. The righteousness revealed in the law of God. And we pursue it as it's found in his word. Now the believer finds the word is a lamp shining in a dark place. And by that word, we learn to examine all things. Fourth, on the day of the Lord, the light of God's rule over all things will be revealed. But now we live in the light of that glorious sovereign rule. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And as such, we are thus qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Fifthly, on the day of the Lord, 
those of the light will be finally separated publicly from those in darkness. But we now live as a separated people. We share with unbelievers human nature. We share the fruits and good things of this world. But we can have no fellowship with those who remain in rebellion. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, said Paul? What fellowship has light with darkness? We now take no part in the unfruitful works of lawlessness, but instead expose them. Sixthly, on the day of the Lord, we will feel the light of God's favor. But we now know this extraordinary blessing. Having been granted, as Paul said, the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This is God's own work within us, that we might both will and work for his good pleasure. And seventhly, on the day of the Lord, we will be revealed as lights of witness to the work of God. But we are now such lights in measure in this dark world. So Jesus taught his disciples, you were the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are now those who, quote, proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, as Peter wrote in his first epistle. Thus clearly, beloved, it follows from this that for folk who live in this way, the day of the Lord is but a public declaration and display of what has long been their experience in part what has long been their confident hope and expectation in Christ. And thus that day, though unknown, will not catch them unaware. Today we take up Paul's exhortation to the children of the day that because of what they are, they are to live in the day as those who are alert and self-controlled That is the burden of Paul's teaching in verses 6 through 8. He wrote to them, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or darkness. And so he urges them in verse 6, So then let us not sleep as others do but let us keep awake and be sober. Sober, excuse me, so then, a formula for Paul, introducing an inescapable moral consequence of his teaching. The words signal a strong connection between two ideas. Thus, his transition to exhortation. We are children of the day, so therefore let us keep awake. There is a powerful contrast here with others. Paul uses uses the same construction 
that he employed in chapter 4, verse 13, when he wrote, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. As before, unbelievers are in view with the phrase, as others. What is their condition, according to Paul? They sleep. That is to say, they are morally and spiritually disengaged, living without a consciousness of the coming day. There's a nice irony here. Believers who are physically dead, Paul says, they're but asleep while they're spiritually alive with Jesus. But unbelievers who are physically alive are asleep. That is spiritually dead in trespass and sin. Believers, on the contrary, are to keep awake for the purpose of being alert or watchful, vigilant, alive to the reality of their situation. So too they are to be sober. Literally, Paul means the opposite of drunkenness. But here, more broadly, the term refers to one who is temperate, who is balanced, one who is self-controlled. It is the clear thinking of a well-composed mind. And seven, he continues, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. An argument from common experience. Note that mankind has not changed all that much. We can make night into day with our technology, but we still use the cover of darkness to do evil. Note that even today, to commit a crime in broad daylight is to be taken to be a particular sign of brazen wickedness. Paul next alters the metaphor now referring to unbelievers as those who get drunk. Clearly, Paul has in view something more than alcohol intoxication. He's speaking of those who have imbibed such a worldly way of life that they are insensitive to the testimony of conscience concerning the coming judgment. By shifting the metaphor, Paul makes the picture all the more forceful. Sleeping people look like they're asleep, but drunken people look like they're awake, even though they are insensitive to the reality of their situation. And so in verse 8, Paul says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You, however, are not of the night. You belong to the day. Let us be sober, he repeats from verse 6. And then to make it clear that he's not merely speaking of the human capacity for iron-willed self-control. Paul uses another of his great military metaphors to describe vividly the Christian way of life. As children of the day, they have already put on the breastplate and helmet. His point is that they're to be watchful and self-controlled in the normal Christian life, the life of faith, the life of hope, the life of love. 
This is a spiritual way of life, pursued in the context of a spiritual battle. We can sum up Paul's teaching in this passage in this way. Since they are children of the day, believers are to be spiritually vigilant as they live through the night of this world in faith, hope, and love, well prepared for the day of Christ's return. Let's consider this together this morning. Having spoken of what it means to be a child of the day, our goal this morning is to reinforce Paul's calling to a way of life that reflects who we are. As I said, today's sermon is all application. First, we must understand the way of life of those who are in the darkness in this age. Second, we must understand the spiritual vigilance required for the children of the day. And third, we must understand that this way of life is a critical element of our witness to Christ, for for this armor of light shines in the darkness. So first, understand the way of life of those in the darkness of this age. They are spiritually insensitive, and they are anxious that others join them in this folly. They are active and persuasive evangelists. There's a terrible irony here. Mankind has surely advanced more and more into the light, the light of technological achievement, through creative genius, investigating creation secrets, and using that knowledge to accomplish extraordinary good. And yet morally, so far from advancing more and more, fallen men and women use these amazing accomplishments for the more efficient pursuit of sinful rebellion against God. The commentator George Weigel eloquently captured an expression of this difference between those living in darkness and those living in light, here adapted from an essay that he wrote in First Things. He put it this way, At the root of today's culture war issues, abortion, euthanasia, the marriage debate, the insurgency of the sexually immoral and confused, are competing and frankly frankly irreconcilable ideas of the human person. Are we people of intelligence and free agency, capable of knowing good and freely choosing it, and finding happiness in that goodness? Or are we congealed stardust, twitching bundles of desires, for whom instant gratification is the sunum bonum, greatest good. We must understand that believers, conti- uh, that, that believers continue further to have a liability toward this way of life due to the influence of remaining sin in us. And thus we must be vigilant because we can still be drawn into the darkness. Thirdly, Satan's opposition to the cause of Christ 
is most effective against those who live as asleep, who live as inebriated. Remember Peter's urgent exhortation in 5.8 of his first epistle. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Jonathan Edwards preached this matter in the striking language. When others are asleep, believers should be awake. When the souls of their neighbors are asleep in their sins and under the power of a lethargic insensibility and sloth, They should watch and pray and maintain a lively sense of the infinite importance of spiritual concerns. Unbelievers must wake up, for the light is shining now. But to do so, they must first see themselves in darkness. Christians must learn to see themselves in the darkness as well, if they aren't alert and careful to attend to their light, Jesus. Understanding the darkness, then, we turn to the idea that we must understand that spiritual vigilance is required for children of the day. Consider three elements. We must be alert, we must be self-controlled, and we must have our armor on. Be alert, watchful. This implies effort and purpose, a determination to keep awake. I experienced this remarkably when I was much younger. Jenny and I lived in western Pennsylvania. My parents were in Washington, D.C., a couple or three hours away. Her folks, however, were 24 hours away. And we couldn't afford to take very long trips. Uh, We had to get out there and back quickly. Uh, So I would typically drive for the 24 hours that it took to get to Minnesota. We'd leave at dusk one evening so the kids could sleep through the whole first part of the trip. About five or six in the morning, it was the worst period. I was as tired as I could be, and I knew especially I had to be alert. And so I had to have all kinds of stratagems. I would recite poems to myself. I would uh, try and do mathematical equations in my head. I would sing silly songs to myself to keep alert. I would uh, try and um, uh, uh, bring verses to my mind, anything to sustain alertness in the course of that trip. It had to be a deliberate, self-sustained effort. And that's what's in view here, that we have a deliberate and self-sustained effort to cause ourselves to be alert with respect to the times and places in which we live. So Christ urged his disciples in Matthew 13, He said, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Again, therefore, stay awake. 
for you do not know when the master of the house will come. And a verse or two later, later, and what I say to you all is this, keep awake. What do you think Jesus wants to repeat three times? An able summary of all this is found in our confession of faith in chapter 23 and section 3. There the divines wrote, as Christ would have us certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so he will have the day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security and always be watchful because they know not the day or the hour the Lord will come, but ever may be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This is spiritual watchfulness of the mind and heart. Here one has his inward and spiritual senses free and exercised so that he knows and discerns the voice of God in his word. And he sees the hand of God in providence, calling him to every form of faithfulness in every circumstance. He's like the prophet described in Habakkuk 1.2.1. I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what my God calls me to. Here one is careful to guard against all temptations that would divert him from his calling. Jesus had to face this. Constantly, those who would tempt him to fail to live up to what the Father had given him to do, even some of his closest friends. You recall when he began to speak of the crucifixion, Peter boldly stood up and said, Not so, Lord. And what did Jesus do? He had to use strong language. Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so he said to his disciples in Matthew 26, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Here, one is always seeking to be ready to meet in faith any future providence of favor or testing. And we ought to regularly examine ourselves. Am I living in this alertness, or am I constantly caught off guard? And we must encourage one another in this alertness along the way. Back to our trips to Minnesota, Jenny would have a tendency to doze off, but every once in a while she'd bolt upright in the, sleep, in the seat and look at me intently and say, are you awake? Here believers can have a ministry to one another. Are you awake to what's happening in your life? Are you awake to the spiritual significance of the challenges that you're facing, not just this worldly challenges, but what it means for eternity? Here also is the way of peace and comfort in the world, that we're not taken by surprise, 
that we don't fear no bad news. Here is the way of real usefulness in the world. So Christian leaders in the past, not having their heads in the sand, but alert, ready to interpret the world and guide the actions of their people, reminding them of what is at stake. We need leaders such as this. We're called not only to alertness, but to spiritual sobriety, number two. Not drunk on appearances, on the things of this world. You know, you can be drunk with the cares of the world. The Scottish commentator James Ferguson put it this way, for not only excess of wine, but the cares of the world and the prevalency of any other lust have an inebriating power, disturbing the reason and oppressing the senses. This is just what Jesus warned in Luke 21. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life, that the day come upon you suddenly as a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape. Calvin put it this way. This spiritual sobriety, this is spiritual sobriety. When we use the world with such moderation and restraint that we are not entangled in its charms. We can be drunk on ambition, this worldly cares, family advancement, gaining wealth, having the right appearances, fame, spiritual sobriety avoids any kind of excess that would stifle sensitivity to God's revelation and purpose. Thus, we're called to self-examination. Am I spiritually sober and self-controlled? And notice here how often prayer is associated with this watchfulness and acknowledging our need that it comes from God and as a means to bring the thing we desire to pass. We should cry out, Lord grant us spiritual self-control. To live this way of life, we must have our armor on. Alert, self-controlled, all of this suggests the vigilance of the well-trained soldier. Thus Paul sounds a call to arms, adopting military imagery, the breastplate breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet of hope, of salvation. The same imagery is at work in Romans 13, 12. He says the night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Notice the same transition from the imagery of light to the imagery of armor. Perhaps it was from Paul's own experience, seeing the glint of the metal of the armor as the light arises in the morning. Perhaps that provoked his thinking here. What does the armor signify? Faith, hope, and love. Spiritual resources for the great day are found in the most basic, 
the most common elements of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. It is the grace of God at work in the commonplace elements of Christian nurture. Paul had already rejoiced before the Lord in the reality of the life of the congregation at Thessalonica. He gave thanks to God for what he saw, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, he reinforces this work, this labor, this steadfastness with a powerful picture. Armor is a frequent image in Paul, though he uses it as a general idea, not as a kind of allegory in the particular details. Here, the breastplate breastplate of faith and love and the hope of salvation as a helmet. In Ephesians, the breastplate is righteousness and the helmet is salvation. But the point is the overall impression. Faith, trust in Christ alone, guided by his word. Love, the working of faith, a ready willingness to do good for others, to sacrifice yourself to the cause of Christ. And hope, not a vague wish, not a wispy uncertainty, but rather a confident certainty grounded in divine promise that what is not yet realized will surely come to pass according to God's word. This is the work of the Spirit of God, Paul teaches us in Galatians. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. It is a defensive armor, protecting against the temptation of sleepwalkers. Paul uses the same metaphor in Romans 13. At verse 11, he said, Beside this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from the sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality or sensuality, nor in quarreling or jealousy, but put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It is defensive armor, yes, but that is not all. If we attend carefully to the use of this imagery in Scripture, we see it is, in fact, the armor of conquest as well. Compare the imagery from Isaiah 59 in our Old Testament lesson this morning. The Lord sees Israel's actions and he's displeased that there's no justice, no one to intercede. And so his own arm brings salvation and righteousness He put on righteousness as a breastplate. He put on the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to the deeds, he would repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. 
This is the Lord's own raiment for the great day of final conquest. There is no one else to do the work. So the Lord arises to battle, putting on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Here, Christians, as those destined to stand alongside the Lord on that day, are also called to put on his armor, defensive and for conquest. Believers wear this garb today and every day in readiness for the day of the Lord. Daily we rise and shine, prepared for the Lord's coming, not in cowering fear, but rather in looking for opportunities in this world to exercise faith, hope, and love in the ordinary circumstances of our lives. By this armor, we are freed to engage and win over the enemy. Note, however, that we wear this armor now not to pursue the judgment reserved for the day of the Lord, for ours is the day of the conquest of God's mercy, not the day of vengeance of his just wrath. This is beautifully captured in the song that we sang this morning, O Church Arise. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we'll fight with faith and valor. When faced by trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, that Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. In closing, we must all understand that this way of life is a critical element of our witness to Christ, for this armor shines a light in the darkness of this world. We must know who we are in Christ, and we must see ourselves as light in him, as one awake and therefore with great responsibility. In Ephesians 5, Paul put it this way, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Because of who you are in Christ, you are called to be like the Philippian believers, blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. Brothers and sisters, since we are children of the day, let us be spiritually vigilant, self-controlled, well-clad in faith, hope, and love as we live through the night of this age, well-prepared for the Lord's return. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these wonderful image images 
that so stir the imagination that the mind can see, as it were, the future and grasp that future and hide it in the heart that we may be enlivened to live in the light of that great day. So we pray to the glory of our King, who is coming in his name. Amen.